thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dave Ansell. Hello, Dave. Hi there. Now, coming up, we'll be finding out how researchers may have solved the problem of organ rejection because there's encouraging news from America relating to kidney transplants. Also, how your mobile phone could soon be rigged up to detect sources of radiation, but without you even knowing it. Plus, why caffeine could be a no-no if you're pregnant. And we'll also be talking to the scientist who's made the world's blackest substance. Yes, it soaks up more than 99% of the light that lands on it. That's all coming up. Dave. Thanks, Chris. This week we're finding out about colds and flus, including a new way to diagnose viral infections, how vaccines work, and why there's no cure for the common cold. Plus, in this week's Question of the Week, we're throwing an interesting idea into the air. There's a plane that's standing on a runway that can move kind of like a really large treadmill. The plane moves in one direction while the treadmill moves in the opposite direction. So the question is, can the plane take off? It's actually a trick question, but why? All will be revealed later in the show. Thank you, Dave. So if you've got a question for us about the science of viruses, colds or vaccines, or you just want to say hi, then do get in touch. You can email me, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off, as we usually do, with a look at what's been hot in the world of science this week. And this certainly caught my eye, which is a piece of research which has come out of the US. David Sachs and his team at Massachusetts General Hospital have managed, perhaps for the first time effectively, in a group of five patients. Four of those five have undergone an organ transplant. They've had a new kidney from a mismatched donor, and they've managed to take these patients off of immunosuppressive drugs after just nine to 15 months. And the patients are perfectly healthy and their organs the transplanted kidneys are not showing any signs of rejection this is a very big breakthrough because up until now patients who've undergone organ transplants have had to be on a cocktail of immunosuppressive drugs they turn down the immune system the consequence of that is that patients become vulnerable to the effects of various infections including viruses and also because the immune system isn't surveilling the body quite so carefully you can get things like cancers occurring because the immune system would normally delete the cancerous cells and because it's switched off it can't do that How did they do it? Well, the trick was that in these patients, when they gave them a kidney transplant, they also gave them a bone marrow transplant. They took bone marrow from the patient that was also giving the kidney as the the donor organ. The patients, first of all, had a conditioning therapy where they were given drugs to partially destroy their own bone marrow. The bone marrow was then infused alongside the donor kidney, which was plumbed in. And then what happened was the, the... donor bone marrow cells establish what's called chimerism with the patient and so the patient basically exists as a mixture of bone marrow of their own type and the donor patient and what we think is going on is that the new bone marrow in some way reprograms the immune system to accept the donor organ so it says to it says to the immune system this donor organ this kidney is not hostile it's not foreign tissue you should recognize it so it re-educates the immune system and the rejection doesn't occur 
If we don't have to match kidney um, organs to the people who are receiving them, does that mean we're going to have a much less of a problem in finding enough organs to transplant? That, in theory, is the suggestion. This was a small trial, and David Sachs says that this is four patients out of five, so an 80% success rate. They did this in, in America. So it needs to be scaled up, more patients need to be studied, and obviously other organ systems need to be looked at. But it's certainly very encouraging because it's been the holy grail, really, of organ transplantation to try to achieve this re-education of the immune system for a very long time. And up until now, it's just not been possible. Brilliant. Now, one of the biggest nightmares of the police and the security services is what's called a dirty bomb. This is where a terrorist blows up a conventional bomb surrounded by radioactive material, radioactive waste, something quite easy to get hold of, relatively easy to get hold of. It's not a real nuclear bomb, but could make a small area radioactive for a very, very long time and create a huge amount of panic, which may even be a bigger problem than the radiation itself. Um, the real headache is without special equipment, it's very hard to tell if something's radioactive. I could have walked into the studio with a suitcase full of nuclear waste and there'd be no way of telling. Um, now, researchers, of Purdue Univers- researchers at Purdue University and a consulting scientist called Andrew Longman have come up with a possible solution by taking advantage of mobile phones. The idea is to put a small, cheap, solid-state radiation detector into, many of the- into as many mobile phones as possible. Now, most mobile phones, especially in the US, have positioning devices inside them. So if one of these phones would detect us above a certain level of radiation, it could automatically phone into a central base station and report, report the amount of radiation and where it is. Now, this is without you even knowing. that. Yeah, it, it would be going on in the background. Uh, as long as the phone's on, it would be trying to detect the radiation. What sort of radiation? Um, basically sort of alpha, beta, gamma rays. Probably get, uh, Alpha probably wouldn't get far enough, so beta, but probably gamma rays coming off. Will this make the phone very, very bulky? Because we've striven for donkey's years to have smaller and smaller phones, and now you're telling me we're going to have a big, great Geiger-Muller tube or something attached to the side of your phone? Um, because they're solid-state um, devices, you can, they're basically like a normal, normal electric component, probably only a few millimetres in each dimension, so it ought to just fit inside a phone without making any difference to the size. Now, uh, Andrew's developed some software which could put together hundreds of these reports and only give a warning to the operator when several of them are, are noticing the radiation because if one of these phones kind of um, makes a mistake and starts, starts sending off alarms and sending the police to all sorts all over the place, it would be a completely useless So system. we've had citizen journalism where scientists uh, and, and also and non-journalists, so members of the public, go and collect interesting stories and, and turn them into things for the media. Now we've got citizen anti-terrorism happening, where you, you sort of keep costs down by sending people out and just using them to find out where all the radiation is. Yeah, it's the idea of sort of taking advantage of a platform which is already there and has got most of the functions you need and just add the radiation. Although it will persuade, involve persuading manufacturers to put them in the devices and persuading people to carry the them phones around. in the US have a GPS transponder in them already, um, and it's on whether you like it or not, so people can track your movements anyway. And I don't think phones in the UK have that, but certainly in the US. And I, I was at a meeting in, in America where a number of people are quite worried because they feel that's an invasion of their civil liberties. So maybe people feel that their right not to detect radiation is being infringed here. I don't know. What do you think at home? Anyway, moving on to things which are very much more real than the prospect of finding radiation with your mobile phone tomorrow. And that's the question of what do you do in terms of your diet and dietary habits and things when you're pregnant? Because there's an interesting study which has been done in California. Uh, Deacon Lee, who actually works for a Californian health insurance company, followed up 1,063 women when they were pregnant for the first 20 weeks of their pregnancy. And as part of the study, asked them about how much caffeine they drink. And caffeine's in a variety of different things. It's not just in coffee, but that's the 
common one, but of course tea contains it. So do fizzy drinks. It's a, it's used as a stimulant in, in certain colas and things, and also in hot chocolate. Part of the pepping up effect of drinking hot chocolate and some cold remedies is caffeine. That's why cold remedies make you feel much better because they contain a big punch of caffeine. And what they wanted to do was to find out whether there was any association between taking a dose of caffeine and a miscarriage in the first twenty weeks. And the data was quite striking, actually. What it showed is that anyone who had an intake of caffeine every day of more than two hundred milligrams, that is equivalent to one and a bit cups of coffee. So actually, a very modest dose. The risk of miscarriage in those people was twofold higher. So what they're saying is that if you want to be absolutely safe in pregnancy, it might be worth your while trying to avoid drinking caffeinated beverages. For the duration of your pregnancy, why should you get this effect? Well, they think there's two possibilities. One is that caffeine can have a vasoconstricting effect; it can narrow blood vessels and put blood pressure up, and this could affect the blood supply to the developing fetus because of its impact on the placenta. And the other possibility that they're suggesting is that it may just be directly toxic to the fetus. Who knows? But、um, either way, what、uh, Deacon Lee says is, women should avoid pregnancy、um, caffeine when they're pregnant. He says it's not a big sacrifice. I think I don't know. I think I'd, I'd, I'd argue with him, but. I'm, I don't drink coffee, so I can't possibly comment. Now, transport systems have been powered by grass for thousands of years. Grass of horses, oxen—they've all been powered by grass. But it looks like it may well be the fuel of the future as well. Farmers in Nebraska and the Dakotas have been taking part in a study on switchgrass, which is a perennial Native American plant which often grows as a weed on the prairies in the Midwest. They've been studying how much energy it takes to grow the grass, including the fuel to power the tractors, the energy required to make the fertilizer to speed its growth, and the energy it requires to produce the seeds. And once they've、um, established that, once the grass is established, they found it produces about five to eleven tons of grass per hectare, depending on the weather. Which, when they convert that into ethanol, which you can use as a biofuel, it should release at least five and a half times the energy that was put in, which compares really, really well with other methods of making biofuels, like based on fermenting foods. Stuffs like maize, which only produce maybe one and a quarter of the times the energy you put in.、Um, although the major unknown in this calculation is ha- no one's actually converted cellulose, which is what most of the energy in grass is, into into ethanol on a large scale yet.、Um, conventional methods involve using large amount of expensive enzymes to break down this cellulose, and then sugars can be into sugars, which can be broken down by yeasts, like in normal fermentation, to make beer. Um, in a related story,、um, a company called Costcutter in America has developed a new strategy、um, to do this,、um, which they reckon they can make ethanol at about a dollar a gallon, which looks really good in this country because it's about twelve p a litre. Um, this relies on heating up the vegetable material without oxygen, which forms carbon monoxide and hydrogen, which is a gas called syngas. They then bubble this through a tank of bacteria, which convert the syngas into ethanol. So, with any luck,、um, there will be a form of biofuel which is actually going to be good for the environment and not just reduce our、um, dependence on Middle East oil. Doesn't it still come down to the fact that you have to have enough land to grow enough of this grass in order to do this viably? Because here in the UK, we use far more far more energy than we could possibly. Grow if we want to eat as well. Yeah, I mean, in this country, we probably wouldn't have a. We would still have a big problem, but in the US, there's a lot more land, and if you can convert cellulose into fuel, that means all the waste products from vegetation, sort of all the stalks from or corn or maize, and all the waste bits of vegetables can get turned into fuel.
Thank you, Dave. This is The Naked Scientist, and in a second we'll be finding out about the blackest substance ever made. It's actually won someone a place in the Guinness Book of Records, but there are scientific reasons why it's important too. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Dave, and if you'd like to join us, we're going to be discussing also later the science of colds, viruses and vaccines. Don't forget our blog, nakedscientist.com forward slash blog, where you can see a background of what's coming up on the programme, plus you can leave your comments or email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. Now, one big thing that's been in the news in the last week or so is a story about the blackest black that's ever been seen. And using carbon nanotubes, Professor Pilikel Ajayan, who's from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, has developed a material that he says absorbs over 99.9% of all the light that falls on it, and that's 30 times darker than our current benchmark for what we call black. Hello, Pilikel. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So why have you done this? What is this stuff? An ideal black material absorbs light at all angles and all wavelengths perfectly. And uh, there were some uh, speculations by, in fact, published work by some Spanish and English scientists who said if you take these tiny carbon cylinders and organize into an array, you can get very high absorption and a very low index of refraction. Uh, of course, to get a very black substance, you also need uh, to minimize the uh, reflectance on the surface, and you can do that by creating a surface roughness. So, so how does your technique actually work? If I was to zoom in with a very powerful microscope on the surface that you've created that is very black, what would I see? Right, you will see uh, nanoscale cylinders of these carbon material. You know, nanometer is about a billionth of a meter, so you have several of these structures that are just randomly placed in the surface. So that's what actually decreases the surface reflectance. And so you have these tiny tubes. I mean, looking right. at the scale of them, that would make them four or five hundred times thinner than, say, a human hair, wouldn't it? So uh, it would be more than that, about three uh, orders of magnitude smaller than... So you have these peppered all over a surface. How, right. how do you make well, them in the actually, first place? There is a periodicity of these structures uh, in the bulk of the material, and on the surface you have a random array. So it satisfies both the criteria that you have a very highly absorptive material and also it reflects very little on the surface. So how does it actually work to mean that so little light comes back off? Basically, it's almost like uh, you have this periodicity and the light enters this material and gets trapped. So how would you uh, see this being used? Because it's, it's one thing to get into the Guinness Book of Records for making the world's blackest substance, but well, how is this actually useful? This was done mostly from an academic curiosity, but uh, you know, something that absorbs a lot of light would be useful as a solar collector. Again, uh, you know, in order to make this into a appropriate device, you would have to worry about some other uh, losses from this material as it absorbs the light. But certainly it will be a very strong absorber. It could also be useful in areas where you want a very black background uh, so that you can have very uh, high definition of the areas which are light and black. So you could use it to trap more sunlight which would make solar cells more efficient. Um, what about other things? D does it work outside the visible spectrum of light? Because of course there's much more to light than just what we can see. There are things like radio waves and microwaves and at the other end of the scale x-rays and gamma rays. Absolutely well. I mean that's our hope. We have not done these things yet but we are in the process of doing the higher uh, and uh, IR and other wavelengths because that will be much more interesting. Okay, thank you very much Pilikel. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. That's Pilikel Ajayan, and he has made the world's blackest substance. We've got details about that on our website at nakedscientist.com if you'd like to follow it up. Now, last week we had a question which was sent in by Derek in Belgium, and he said, Dave, he wanted to know, how, there's this old myth that if you turn on a strip light, a fluorescent light, 
it uses so much energy to turn it on that it's not worth turning it off again. It's worth leaving it on for a period of time if you're going to come back within a certain amount of time. And we didn't know what that period of time was. Um, I actually have to say a very big thank you to Shia Frederick and also to Kurt Shalitz, who both found me the answer. I'm very grateful. And they've sent me some references. And based on experimentation, they have concluded that... And these references have sent me a fluorescent light uses as much energy getting started as it does to run for 23.3 seconds. So, in other words, that is a bit of a myth about leaving it on for very long. Because if you're going to be in the room and gone for less than 23.3 seconds, there's no point in leaving it on, basically. You might as well turn it off because it uses not very much more energy. To put that in comparison, an LED run has to run for 1.28 seconds before it uses as much energy. But the good old-fashioned incandescent lamp, 0.36 seconds before it's run and used as much energy actually run as it does to turn it on. Brilliant. Right, now let's go over to Ben for the first part of this week's potentially very damp Kitchen Science. Hello and welcome to Kitchen Science. This week I'm with the 23rd Cambridge Brownies and I'm with Alice. Hello. And I'm with Maddie. Hello. And of course I'm with Dave Ansel. Hi Dave. Hi there, man. And it's a cold night tonight but I can see that Dave has a bucket of water and this doesn't bode well. Dave, what are we doing? We're going to turn this bucket of water upside down over the top of one of these young ladies' heads. How do you feel about that idea? Um, it's okay. Um, maybe a bit wet, but hey-ho. So what do you think about getting wet on a cold night like this? Um, it'll be very chilly, but it depends on the temperature. Okay then, Dave. So is it nice warm water you've got? No, it's good cold water. But with any luck, you won't get wet. So what do you think of the chances if we turn a bucket of water upside down above your head? Do you think you'll stay dry? Maybe wet, maybe dry. I'm not sure. And what do you think? It has to be a pretty good experiment, but I don't know. <laughs> you can do this at home. All you need is a small bucket, ideally where the handle is going to stay on really well. It's not going to fall off. So not like a beachside bucket and spade bucket, but something pretty serious? A decent beachside bucket and spade would be fine, but not a really cheap one. OK, so we've got our bucket with a good solid handle. What else do we need? Then just fill it maybe a third full of water, and that's all you need. Okay, well, we're going to try this out and we will come back to you later in the show with or without some very soggy brownies. So if you think you know how on earth we'll we'll manage to turn a bucket of water upside down above a brownie's head with no one getting wet, let us know on chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Dave. Right, Dave, I've got an email for you from Luke, and he says, My name's Luke, and I'm a musician who listens to your podcast in New York. It's amazing how much I learn from you guys. I recently bought some tiny magnets from the hardware store to stick things up on my wall. I bought these magnets called Rare Earth Magnets. They're so strong that now I can't unstick them from each other. It's amazing. Can you tell me how these tiny magnets are about one? one and a half centimetres in diameter differ from other magnets that don't have the same kind of power? Um, basically, all magnets like that, they work by um, on the fundamental minute scale. It's because iron, iron atoms, iron, nickel and cobalt atoms, they have more electrons orbiting in one direction than the other. Um, and this means they produce little tiny currents, which are like electromagnets. Um, with ferromagnetic things like iron, nickel and cobalt, um, these tend to like lining up into areas. Now, um, normally, if you just case take a piece of iron, these areas, the north poles of these little areas will attract the south poles of other little areas, and they'll all wind up in going into circles, and overall there's no magnetism. Um, if you put them in a big, strong mag- magnetic field, they'll all line up. 
Now, normally with iron, if you take that magnetic field off, quite most of them will then realign and move all randomly. So jiggle up again. They'll all jiggle up a bit and end up getting pointing in random directions again. With very strong magnets, basically the structure of the alloy that they've made the magnet out of tends to make it very, very hard to change the direction of the magnetic field in so these So more of them stay lined up? Yeah, so more of them stay lined up. So you get a stronger magnetic field? So it'll preserve a stronger magnetic field, yes. Thank you, Dave. I have wondered that myself, so thank you for that. Got an email here from George Campbell who says, My wife and I are expecting our first child and we've been using a Doppler machine to listen to the baby's heartbeat. It's very fast, at least 150 beats a minute, whereas ours is about 70. Why is this? Does an elephant have a very slow heartbeat? And why does it take, does it take longer for blood to circulate in bigger animals, for example? Keep it naked, and that's from George and Catherine Campbell. You're on the right lines there, George. The reason is that if you think of the heart as almost like a sphere... And the volume of a sphere is given by the mathematical formula 4 over 3 pi r cubed. I think I've got that right, haven't I, Dave? Yep. Um, now, that's, so that's the volume of blood that a heart could hold. You can work out how much output's coming out of your heart by timesing how many times a minute the heart beats, that's your heart rate, by what's called the stroke volume, so how much blood the heart squeezes out with every beat. Now, given that a heart that's small, instead of it just decreasing its volume by a small amount when you shrink the heart a bit, it will actually decrease the volume of blood proportionally by the radius cubed. So in other words, for every shrinkage of the heart, as the heart gets smaller and smaller, in fact, there's a very big decrease in the amount of volume it can pump. So you can compensate for the reduced volume by increasing the rate at which you pump. So if you have a smaller heart, you have to make it go faster. So a mouse's heart, for instance, can be pumping at two or three hundred, probably four hundred times a minute, whereas a, a big whale could have a heartbeat of, say, 20 or 10 times a minute. But it has got a heart which is the same size as a Volkswagen Beetle. So... That's why. I guess also, in a, on a related sort of note, um, if you've got a very, very big heart, it's just going to be almost impossible to empty that very, very quickly. It would be impossible to empty a whale's heart, which is sort of several feet across, in 400 times a second. You just couldn't shift the blood quick enough. Well, I also think that the, the dynamics of muscle contraction wouldn't be able to occur fast enough to make the muscle get shorter quickly enough to, en masse to move that amount of blood, as you say, quite at that speed, which is quite a phenomenal thing to have achieved, to be able to pump something the size of a Volkswagen Beetle 20 times a minute. Anyway, still to come, we'll be finding out about the influenza virus, which is responsible for making people feel pretty awful every year. But before that, let's find out about the science of our emotions with this week's rising star. She's Yvonne Ariki. Emotions colour every part of our lives. They dominate so many aspects of human thought and behaviour, yet they still remain a biological enigma. In the past, because of their elusive nature, emotions were never considered worthy of scientific study, and so they were generally left to the realms of philosophy. But in the last century, catalyzed by breakthroughs in the understanding of brain structure and function, this attitude has changed. Emotion is now a research topic of intense interest. Considering one in six adults suffer from emotional disorders like depression, it's never been so important for us to understand the biology of emotions. And with a clearer understanding, we hope to produce better treatments. Here in Cambridge, we've been exploring the changes that occur in both our bodies and our brains during positive emotions. For example, if you were to catch a sight or a whiff of your favourite food, let's say a chocolate cake. So far, brain imaging studies have shown that the area that initially responds to emotional triggers like cake is a small almond-shaped structure located deep in the brain called the amygdala. But what's the amygdala's role in emotion? Let's say you're walking past a bakery. You see and smell a fresh cake. Despite not having even thought of cake until this point, you suddenly really feel like eating cake. It's the amygdala that responds to the cake. The amygdala focuses your attention, subtly affects your heart rate and behaviour, and primes your body to get the cake. 
Often, however, these reactions are not appropriate. For example, if you were late for an appointment, it wouldn't exactly be the best time to stop and buy cake. In these situations, the amygdala responses are overridden by another area of the brain, known as the frontal lobe, so called because it sits at the front of your brain, directly above your eyes. The frontal lobe inhibits and modifies your immediate reactions, so you don't waste time getting cake when you're already late for a meeting. It does this by blocking the amygdala's response, and so is important in tailoring your behavior to suit any given situation. But what happens when these two brain regions don't work effectively together? Well, recent research suggests that unchecked amygdala responses can lead to addictive or compulsive disorders, as well as to depression or schizophrenia. Whilst these observations are interesting, it's not yet clear how we can apply them to improve treatment of such disorders. That's because the way different regions of the brain interact is immensely complex, and so reliable results are often slow to come by. But we are starting to make headway. With more research, we hope to understand not only disordered emotion, but what makes and shapes our very different and individual personalities. That was Ivona Riki, and we'll be having another of Cambridge University's rising stars on next week. Thank you very much, Dave. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Dave. This week and in a second, we'll be talking a bit more about the science of viruses, vaccines and common colds, why they make you ill and why we perhaps haven't got a cure yet for the common cold. Coming up is Ed Hutchinson, who's a researcher at Cambridge University. He'll be talking about his work on how the flu makes you ill. And if you'd like to join in and ask any questions, you can put your comments on our blog at nakedscientist.com forward slash blog. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It is The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Dave. We're talking about infectious diseases, and foremost among them, the thing which, surprisingly to most people, actually kills about 12,000 people in the UK every single year, and that's influenza. So Ed, Ed Hutchinson's a researcher from Cambridge University. Ed, what is this beast that we all succumb to on a regular basis? Well, starting with, it's a virus, and like all viruses, it's really incredibly small. It's 100 nanometres across, that's about a quarter of a wavelength of visible light. And because it's so small, it can replicate incredibly quickly, but also because it's so small, it really can't do anything. It has to take over cells and get them to, to do all the jobs it needs. So you mean because the virus is so tiny, it doesn't have the machinery to copy itself, so it needs to invade us or things like us to do that? Exactly, yeah. it's traded off that ability in order to replicate very quickly. Is it just us that gets the flu? No, flu... Well, it comes in several stri- several different types, but the one we really worry about we call influenza A, and that infects a huge range of different creatures. Yeah, it infects people, but it also infects birds. We worry a lot about bird flu. It infects, infects seals, infects whales. So could you just give a sort of walking tour? If I had a really powerful microscope and I could see the flu, what, what would the virus look like? It looks a bit like a kidney bean, really, or a baked bean floating around. It's this little oval thing. And like I say, you would need a very powerful microscope. You'd need an electron microscope because it's, it's far smaller than the wavelength of the light. That's most viruses. Now, some of the influenza viruses as well stay the same width but extend out as great long filaments. But the ones we, we spend most of our time studying, they're just little baked bean-shaped things. Why, why do they form these filaments then? That's really not very well understood. We know they, in, this happens in clinical isolates. It doesn't tend to happen when you're looking at them in the lab. But when they're growing in your throat, sometimes these viruses grow out as great strands and they extend upwards into the mucus, which is covering the cells in your throat. And we think it might have something to do with getting the virus coughed out and spread on from person to person, because the way this virus spreads is the virus gets into the mucus, you cough or you sneeze, and then if a handkerchief doesn't get in, in the way, 
it then gets breathed in by someone else and they get infected. Are handkerchiefs actually useful as a way of stopping it? Because it sounds like it, it's so tiny that a handkerchief, which you can physically see through if you hold it up to the light, doesn't sound like much of a barrier. Yeah, but bear in mind you're not just coughing up virus, you're coughing at a whole wad of snot as well, so this is going to stick in your handkerchief. I should point out at this point, there's a wonderful article on our website this week, it's been written by Becky Poole, and it's all about why snot is green. If you go to nakedscientist.com, you'll see it's advertised there, all about the science of, of mucus, to give it its, its proper name. But Ed, so carry on with your tour, a guided tour of flu, so if, if we could look at it, what, what are the sort of key points about it? Well, what you've got is really a box which has got the flu genes on the inside. And on the outside, it's got some proteins. These are the things the virus has built out of, and these allow it to get into cells and to get out again. So these proteins grab onto cells, the virus gets inside, and then within about 12 hours, it's copied itself hundreds and hundreds of times. God, that's quick, isn't it? It's incredibly quick. Like I say, very small, very quick replication. So the incubation period of flu is incredibly short. Mm. When you think that most air travel, for example, you can be on the other side of the world and it takes about 24 hours to do it. You could, if you picked up flu on one side of the planet, you could be infectious for it during the flight before you even touch down. That's a scary thought when you look at it like that, yes. So how does it actually get into the cells that it needs to invade, and, and then how does it take them over? Well, on the outside of flu, one of these things on the surface, it's decorated with a little stalk called hemagglutinin. Now, we tend to abbreviate that to HA or even H, and that grabs onto the surface of the cell and get, hauls the virus inside. And once the virus is inside, that box before the genes in opens up and the virus genes fall out into the centre of the cell, and then they just take the cell over and turn it into a factory for making more flu. When the virus gets out again from the cell, as, as it assembles, it uses another protein which decorates the outside of the virus called neuromindase, which we abbreviate to NA or N, and that cuts it off from the cell and gets it out again. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this hemagglutinin, the HA, and the neuromindase, the NA, is because because these cover the outside of the virus, it's these proteins, these building blocks, which are seen by the immune system. It's these things which antibodies stick to. And it's for this reason when we talk about viruses, we tend to categorise them by their hemagglutinin type and their neuromindase type. So their H-type and their N-type. So hence H5N1. Exactly right, yeah. And when, you know, when this virus goes in, what's the, the sort of genetic material it uses? Because people talk about the flu continuously coming back. So if it was just the same infection every time, we'd all get immune to it, but we don't. So why is that? Well, flu mutates very, very rapidly. And this is partly because its genome, instead of being built of DNA, which is what we're familiar with from humans, it uses RNA. That's, a, if you like, a much more primitive thing for building a genome out of and one of the things it's absolutely hopeless at copying itself accurately so flu is constantly mutating all the time and because of this the vaccines which we use against flu need to be constantly updated but there's another side to this as well every so often and we're talking you know a few times a century flu will suddenly change and the h-type and the n-type will change to something completely different and that can be catastrophic this is a disease which normally will kill 250 to 500 th million people globally every year that's a that's a um so in other words what you're talking about is how you get new pandemics so you go from yeah. an epidemic which just gently changes and becomes a bit different to something which is devastatingly different yes exactly and these completely new viruses will sweep through your population thank you very much ed that's Edge Hutchinson. He's a researcher at Cambridge University. He works on the flu. If you'd like to ask him any questions, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. On the way, we'll also be talking to John Wood. He's a researcher who works on how we actually make vaccines to try and stop the flu and how vaccine technology actually works. Now it's time to find out about a revolutionary new way to diagnose our winter bugs in two hours rather than two weeks. This is going to lead to numerous benefits in treating flu and other respiratory viruses, so we sent Mira to Addenbrooke's hospital to find out more. <coughs> Ha <laughs> <sighs>
how that feels? I'm sure you do. Each year, we're all hit with either the flu or, if we're lucky, just a cold. But it always seems to take ages to recover and even longer to get a clear diagnosis from the doctor about which bug is causing us to feel so unwell. Part of the problem is that there are hundreds of different viral infections and they all have slightly different characteristics, which means they're difficult to identify on their own. To do it, scientists either have to grow the offending virus in the laboratory or study the antibodies being made in a patient's blood to find out what viruses they're fighting off. In both cases, the process is really slow and patients have usually recovered or deteriorated significantly by the time a diagnosis is made. Of course, these delays make it difficult for doctors to know how best to treat severely ill patients and to tell who should be isolated to prevent cross-infections in hospitals or out in the community. But now, a new technique developed by researchers at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge can identify some of the most common respiratory infections in less than two hours, potentially solving many of these problems. It works by copying the nucleic acids, or in other words, the DNA, or a related chemical called RNA, contained within eight of the most common virus infections that strike in the wintertime, including the flu virus. Now, to detect which viruses are present in a patient's sample, the researchers also add coloured probes, which glow when they detect DNA from a specific virus. So as the viral genetic material is copied, it glows more and more brightly. And by using different coloured probes to recognise different viruses, all the team have to do is read off the colour of the solution to see which virus is there. And if more than one virus is present, it can tell that too. Martin Curran is one of the scientists behind the work. It uses fluorescent uh, oligonucleotide probes uh, that are mirror images of uh, what you're amplifying, a little short little stretch. And each of these have different labels. You can have different labels on them. So you can have a red, green, uh, blue or orange. And so what happens is you can put these in to different viral targets and if you are amplifying specifically the virus of interest, that will actually bind and you'll get a certain fluorescent reading from that. And we can use different probes with different colours on them and in effect do four or five different reactions in a single tube. And we call that multiplexing to screen for the 13 or 14 different viruses that can cause respiratory infections. What kind of samples are you getting from your patients in order to look for these viruses on them then? Well, we get a whole range of viruses. Sometimes we get nasal pharyngeal aspirates, which uh, are socked up from the back of the throat. Uh, we'd all get nose swabs or throat swabs. And certainly we'd, we'd get some BALs, bronchial alveoli lavage, that is deep washes from deep down in the lung. How do you get from these samples to actually putting them into the machine ready for analysis? We get the samples and we just strip off all the protein and all the virus and just purify the nucleic acid, whether that's RNA or DNA. And then that sample will go into the, the real-time PCR. And what have the benefits been so far? Uh, previously, the sensitivity was poorer. You might only find 30%, one in three of your samples positive. Whereas with this new technology, it's far more sensitive. And our positivity rate now from the samples that have come in is sitting at about 75%. So we know how it's possible to get such a speedy and more accurate diagnosis. But has this made a difference in practice? I asked Tim Reggett, a consultant virologist, if there have been any benefits. Well, they've been quite substantial. Uh, first of all, it means that we can diagnose infections quicker. With the previous techniques we had, which was largely virus culture, it could take a week to get a result. And if you're saying that patients need to be treated, for example, for influenza within 48 hours, if you just did culture, that would completely rule out them being treated accurately. 
But I guess also a reduction in the amount of time will also reduce the actual spread of it. Absolutely, and that's very important. If you have, for example, a patient in an intensive care unit, you need to make sure that if a patient does have influenza, you pick it up quickly. You can then make sure staff are vaccinated and that patients nearby are given prophylaxis. Equally, if we can identify a case quickly, then we can review their treatment. So if they're on antibiotics and there's no proven bacterial infection, we can maybe take them off antibiotics and make sure they're on the proper antiviral And we have had cases here where that's happened. Patients have got better quite quickly. And I guess there's also a large benefit in taking people off antibiotics if they don't need them because they can develop resistance and things like that, can't they? Absolutely, and not only resistance, but also they can develop side effects. If you give certain antibiotics to people, particularly if they're older, then they are likely to develop very profuse watery diarrhoea. The fewer people we have on antibiotics, the better. So ever since this technique has been in use, say, here in Addenbrookes, have there been any interesting findings? There have. First of all, the increased sensitivity means that we've detected far more infections in patients with symptoms. So now, as we're looking with the more sensitive techniques, we're beginning to understand that patients aren't necessarily infected with one virus. They may be infected with two or three and it's fair to say we're currently working through those to try and understand better which viruses are causing symptoms. So the reason why some colds are worse than others could be because we're being hit by more than one bug at once. This real-time PCR technique can now rapidly identify some of the most common problem viruses, allowing doctors to prescribe the right medication much more quickly and also to isolate patients more promptly, preventing spread of infections. So gone are the days of just being sent away by the doctor with the line, it's a virus, because in future you'll know which one and whether you really do have a good reason to take a day off work. That was Mira talking to Martin Curran and Tim Reggett from Addenbrooke's Hospital about a new analysis technique enabling doctors to treat and contain viruses better than ever before. Thank you, Dave. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Dave. We're talking about viral infections, colds and flus this week. If you have any questions for us, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. We've heard from Mark in Bletchley. He's coming up in a second. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Well, we've already heard about how flu actually causes disease, how it invades us, how it hijacks our cells and makes us feel generally grotty. But how do we actually prevent it? John Wood is from NIBSC. That's the National Institute of Biological Standards and Controls, which means he works with flu vaccines. Hi, John. Hello. So what's in a flu vaccine that prevents us from getting sick and does it actually work? Well, most of the flu vaccines are um, produced... Uh, the, the virus is grown in, in hen's eggs and uh, the, the viruses are, are purified from, from the hen's egg uh, fluids. They're uh, chemically in, uh, treated, so they're n- no longer capable of, of infecting people. Um, and then these uh, purified uh, virus particles or components of them, they are used to uh, give to patients by usually intramuscular injection. And, and this in turn stimulates the body's immune system into thinking that they've actually been invaded by flu. They've caught flu. So in other words, you're showing this viral shrapnel to the immune system so it gets a kind of sneaky preview of what the virus looks like, so it makes an immune response. Does it make as good an immune response as if you actually catch the flu? 
Uh, it's thought not. Uh, the, the, the best way of stimulating a robust immune response, which will give you protection for months and months to come, is uh, an infection itself. We had an, an email from uh, a question from Mark in Bletchley who says, I've been in contact with someone who's had the flu quite badly, but I didn't catch it. Why would that be? Well, I don't know the particular circumstances. It's possible, I hope, uh, that, that maybe he had a vaccine, but maybe not. Uh, he could have been exposed to flu, uh, a, a related flu in the past, which gave him some immunity. Maybe he didn't know he'd been exposed to flu in the past. It may have been a kind of subclinical infection. He didn't know this. Uh, I, I, I expect he had some kind of immunity. Ed was saying that the flu mutates as it goes around the world, and this is why we get consistent outbreaks year on year. So how do you make sure the vaccine is going to work every year? This is a big problem, and uh, the World Health Organization has a, a worldwide network of laboratories that have, uh, I think, over 120 so-called national influenza centers around the world, and they, they monitor the newly emerging flu viruses. Uh, they, they analyze them, and they compare them with the, the previous year's flu viruses. Specifically, they're looking at the surface proteins to see how much they vary, because these are the, the hypervariable part of, of, the, of the virus. And, and then the activities of these national centres, they are coordinated by four WHO collaborating centres. We have one here in the UK at Mill Hill in London, one at CDC in Atlanta, one in Tokyo and one in Melbourne. Um, and these, the directors of these centres, they come together twice a year in Geneva, the headquarters of the WHO, to analyse all the data. Um, I'm... I'm fortunate that I'm kind of asked along because they, they like to have some of the key regulating laboratories as well because we have to deal with a kind of fallout from any new uh, strain recommendation. So we uh, look at all the data. Uh, we look at how the immune system stimulated by last year's vaccine recognises the new, the new vaccines. We look at the genetic properties of the new viruses, how these viruses react with the immune system, and then we make a prediction of which strains are likely to cause flu next year. So is this based on viruses that are doing the rounds in the southern hemisphere? So when it's their summer and it's our winter here, you know, we're collecting viruses at the moment. Is, are we going to send them to them for their flu season next year so they can make vaccines? It, it often does happen like that, yes. Uh, so uh, I said we, the WHO experts meet twice a year, once for the northern hemisphere recommendation, and that's... Uh, in, in coming up in the next month, and then one for the Southern Hemisphere recommendation, that's usually September. So if you, if you monitor very carefully what happens in the other hemisphere, it's a very good indication what we're going to get next year. Lots of people are saying, if we're going to have a pandemic of flu, why are people worrying about antiviral drugs that are, at best, not very good? Why aren't we making a vaccine against pandemic flu? Well, we are making, we are trying to develop vaccines against pandemic flu. There are huge problems in trying to make vaccines against pandemic flu. If we think it's going to be H5N1, there are lots of different varieties of H5N1 there causing infections, lethal infections in birds. Uh, well over six genetic groups have been recognised of H5N1. Um, and you would expect uh, that a vaccine produced from one of these genetic groups may not give you very good protection against another one. So you, there's no way of knowing which one would actually uh, 
cause a pandemic in the future. So it sounds a horrible pun, but you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, <laughs> put all yeah. your vaccine into one particular type that it might not end up being that type. Well, that well, is well that's correct. You don't even know that it's going to be H5N1. It, it could be an old pandemic virus such as H2N2, which caused Asian flu from 1957 to 68. I've got an email here from Ryan Bradley who says, I tried to hold my sneezes in, at least to have the air coming out of my mouth as opposed to my nose. The reason is I don't like spewing mu- mucus out of my nose onto my hands and other people. The pressure doesn't bother me. So I was wondering if this practice is at all detrimental to my health or if it defeats the purpose of needing to sneeze. What do you reckon? Um, I think it sounds a little bit dangerous practice to me. But we've had a call from John in Colchester who says... What about long-haul flights with moving viruses around the world? This must be a major consideration. And, and are there actually steps taken to sterilise the air on aeroplanes and things like that? I, I don't know if there are steps to, taken to sterilise the air, but certainly uh, talking to people who have been lo- on long-haul flights, they often complain, particularly of respiratory symptoms, uh, after the flights because the air is recirculated. Uh, the, the kind of um, tourist class syndrome, they, they think they're getting... <laughs> cheap, uh, worse air than the uh, business class. I really don't know the mechanics of this. Okay, thank you very much, John. That's John Wood. He's from the NIBSC, and he's talking about flu and how we make flu vaccines. Dave, it's now time to catch up with Diana for question of the week. Hello, it's time for another question of the week from the Naked Scientists with me, Diana O'Carroll. This week, we're taking an aeroplane to the gym. Hi, my name is Kian from uh, Sydney, Australia, and the situation I've got is uh, there's a plane that's standing on a runway that can move kind of like a, a really large treadmill. The plane moves in one direction while the treadmill moves in the opposite direction. The treadmill has some sort of control system that tracks the plane speed and tunes the speed of the treadmill to be exactly the same but in the opposite direction. So the question is, can the plane take off? Is this setup going to be a help or a hindrance? Here's our expert to find out. Hi there, my name is Tim Saby, and I'm a pilot and Cambridge physics graduate. In order for an aircraft to take off, it must have sufficient vertical forces to counteract its weight. The major component of this upwards force is lift. Now, lift is generated by airflow over the wings, creating a lower pressure distribution on the upper surface compared with the lower. This has the effect of deflecting air downwards as it passes over the wing. The equal and opposite reaction force this is upwards and called lift. Lift is dependent on the aircraft's speed, so it must be at sufficient speed on takeoff, typically 130 to 150 knots for a commercial jet, in order to produce the lift to take off. The second upwards force is the vertical component of the engine's thrust, as when the aircraft nose is pitched up, part of the thrust vector will be vertical. The aircraft will be accelerated down the runway by its engines. These accelerate backwards, and again, the equal and opposite reaction force on the plane is in the forwards direction, known as thrust. In the situation described, there is a conveyor belt which automatically tracks the aircraft ground speed and moves at that speed, but in the opposite direction. Since the aircraft is not accelerated by means of contact with the ground such as the car is, the only effect will be that the wheels spin faster, so there's more friction. The aircraft will still be able to accelerate to the speed that produces enough lift to take off. This, however, will increase the runway length required, but given that's sufficient, it will still be able to take off. The bottom line is, a plane is driven forward by its jet or propeller engines. It doesn't have powered wheels like a car. In terms of moving forwards, the wheels on it act purely as a friction-reducing mechanism, enabling the plane to reach high speeds without the fuselage dragging on the runway. The treadmill would A, have the wheels spinning twice as fast as normal, and B, generate a fair bit of friction which might extend takeoff time and distance. But ultimately, the plane would move forwards, and as long as it's moving forwards in relation to the ground and fast enough, 
there would be enough airflow over the wings to generate lift and make the plane take off. But what if a plane gained its takeoff speed from motorised wheels? Hello, I'm Terry Holloway. I work for Marshall Cambridge as the group support executive. In this particular instance, the assumption is that the aeroplane is sitting on this mobile conveyor belt runway. As the aeroplane gains speed and goes forward, so the conveyor goes backwards at an identical speed. Let us say hypothetically that this particular aeroplane we're talking about would normally take off at 100 miles per hour. When it reaches a forward speed of 100 miles per hour, in other words, its wheels on the runway, the conveyor is going backwards at 100 miles per hour, but the aeroplane's speed through the air is zero. There's no air flowing over the aerofoil section of the wing, which produces the lift. Therefore, the aeroplane won't fly. But there aren't any gliders that take off using motorised wheels for the simple reason that as soon as they're lifted from the ground, they could no longer gain any forward propulsion and that would be a bit of a rubbish flight. On our forum, Sophie Centaur, Turnip Sock and Board Chemist all came up with the same answer as our experts. So here's another challenge for you lot. Hello, my name's Tom Gallard from London and I'd like to ask, how is oxygen made and recycled in the International Space Station? After dealing with old spacer, I'll be handling this slippery one. Hi, this is Robin. I'm calling from California in the USA. Uh, I had a question about electric eels. I was wondering how do they themselves do not get hurt by the electric shocks that they use to communicate or stun prey? And since they're in wire, how far does the current carry? How is breathable air made and however do electric eels work? Email me at questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com or have a scribble on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thanks, Diana. So just how do they recycle oxygen in space and how do electric eels avoid self-electrocution? Just email questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com with your answers or go to thenakedscientist.com slash forum. Thank you, Dave. And just to point out, also Daniel Mackay and also Guy from Seattle, Washington, USA, also wrote similar things to those answers that will feature. So thank you very much, guys. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. And this is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Dave. We're talking viruses this week. And one of our guests is Ed Hutchinson from Cambridge University. Ed, we've got an email here from Robin who says, Hi, Naked Scientist. Since viruses aren't technically living organisms, where did they come from and how are they formed? How have they evolved? Well, in the case of flu, you've got the fact that flu will spread from organism to organism. So although we're worried particularly about it as a human virus and the virus of livestock as well, it actually starts off as a virus in waterfowl. Things like ducks, where it's not really a pathogen at all. It just lives in there and gets along with them. That doesn't really tell you where viruses come from. We know that they can spread from organism to organism. In the first place, viruses probably evolve as just bits of the genetic sequence which get out of hand and start copying themselves, moving to places they shouldn't do, and acquiring more and more abilities along the way. So there are quite a few examples of this where things start jumping around inside genomes and eventually, eventually get the ability to jump from cell to cell as well. So in the answer to what came first, chicken or the egg, with a virus cell sort of situation, it has to be the cell came first, virus probably came later. Well, remember, the defining feature of a virus is that it's absolutely dependent on taking over a cell to work. So without a cell, the virus isn't going to do anything at all. Thank you very much, Ed. Right, so earlier in the show, for our kitchen science, we asked you to grab a bucket of water, put some water in it, spin it round over your head and see if you get wet or not. Paul in Hitchens got a theory on this. Hello, Paul. Hello, Dr. Chris. What was your thought? Well, apart from the obvious answer, which would be to freeze the water, I think the answer you're looking for is using centrifugal force. 
Okay, well, let's well let's head back to Ben and see whether the twenty third Cambridge Brownies meeting actually got wet as a result of their antics. Hello again, welcome back to Kitchen Science. We're still here with twenty third Cambridge Brownies, and we're still here with Dave Ansell and his worrying looking bucket of water. So, Dave, the brownies are still dry for now, but what is it that you want them to do? Okay, so next, what I want you to do is stand so there's no one in front of you or behind you. Basically, we don't want you to let go of the bucket and it fly off and hit someone. So maybe six feet um, either side of you and in front of or behind you, you want sort of 10 or 15 feet. So, Maddie, you've got the bucket now and uh, clearly we're all standing quite a long way away. Do you feel a bit scared over here? I feel OK, but a bit scared. <laughs> and how warm is the water? Quite cold. <laughs> OK, so you a bit worried that you're going to get wet? Just a little bit. Well, I'm going to back off again out of the safety zone, away from this flying bucket. So, Dave, what's next? Now, what I want Maddie to do very smoothly, without hitting her leg, is gently swing that bucket more and more and more until she's got it swinging so it goes up and down to about horizontal each time. And when she's got it swinging really well, I want her to take one really big swing and take it all the way over her head and keep it going and going in the circle. <laughs> what, what happened then, Maddie? I swung it and no water came out. So you swung it all the way over your head? Um, yeah. OK, Alice, did you see what Maddie did? Um, yeah, she quickly um, spun it round and no water came out. Would you like to have a go? Oh, yes, please. OK, then, Alice, so if you want to get that bucket swinging forwards and backwards in a nice, smooth motion, we're staying well out of the way. Can you let us know what happens when, once you've got it swinging fast enough? I need you to shout. OK! <laughs> <laughs> Alice, what happened there? You, you seem to have a wet arm. Well, I swung it all the way round, um, and it was fine, and then the bucket tipped over, so it wasn't that good. Okay, Dave, well, this seems a bit strange to me, because when the bucket was upside down, directly above their heads, none of the water came out. But when Alice swung it round, when she was sort of on the back swing afterwards, she slowed down a bit, and lots of the water came out. What's going on there? Okay, the first thing is we've got to work out why water falls out the bucket in the first place. I've got a small cup here, which makes things a bit drier when we do these experiments. So I've got some water in this cup. If we turn it upside down... The water came out directly. Uh, she's right, Dave. As soon as you turned it upside down, the water came out. But we've just seen that when you put a bucket of water upside down, no water comes out. So why did the water come out when you turned the cup upside down? Well, the reason is that gravity, which pulls everything down towards the centre of the Earth, will pull the water down, but I'm holding onto the cup, so the cup stays away and the water falls downwards. So the water falls out of the cup because you are fighting gravity by holding the cup up, but the water can't fight it. Yeah, that's right. And if I put some water in the cup and hold it the right way up... Now the water's getting pulled downwards into the bottom of the cup and it's staying there. However, if I pull the cup downwards faster than gravity is trying to pull it, then we can see what happens. So you've seen that when he turned the cup upside down, all the water came out. And now what he said he's going to do is keep the cup the right way up, but move it downwards faster than gravity. What do you think will happen? I think it will work because he's not actually tipping the water. So do you think he's going to still have all the water in when he's dropped it? I think so, if all goes well. Well, I'm at a safe distance, so uh, when you're ready... Here we go. I'm going to pull the cup down very quickly. It did actually splash everywhere. I was completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, you're building a bit of a puddle around yourself now, but fortunately none of us have got wet. But how is it that, even though the cup was the right way up, uh, all the water came out? So when I pull the cup down really fast, I pull the cup downwards faster than the water is falling, so the water gets left behind and comes out of the cup. And that's why you've got a puddle around your feet? Pretty much, yes. OK, well, this still doesn't explain why you can swing a bucket over your head and not get wet. 
Now, in order to make the bucket go in a circle, you've got to pull it towards the centre of the circle. If it's at the top, then you're pulling it downwards to make it go in a circle. Now, if you're pulling it faster than the water wants to fall under gravity, then the bucket's going to get pulled down, and the water's going to get left in what is the bottom of the bucket, but is now at the top, and it's not going to fall out. So effectively, you're pulling the bucket faster than the water wants to fall, and so you keep pulling the bucket around the water, and it doesn't fall out. Yeah. So what do you think about that, then? Cool. Um, I think it's quite amazing, because so gravity's quite a really strong force and everything. So are you glad that you stayed dry, even though you had a full bucket of water over your head? Um, yeah, I'm very glad. And what do you think? Will you show somebody this at home? Probably, yeah. Well, that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week. So from Dave Ansell, from myself, and from the 23rd Cambridge Brownies, it's goodbye. Bye! <laughs> Thank you very much to Ben Valsler, who you heard there with the 23rd Cambridge Brownies. So, Paul, what did you make of that? Well, I think that's a good example. I've got three examples here of centrifugal force, if you've got time, Chris. Well, we are a bit short for time, but if they're quick examples... A uh, hammer thrower winding up for a throw. The wall of death, that's two. An astronaut's training on a centrifuge. Yes, you're right. And, and so what, what's happening there is that actually in relation to the bucket, with Dave's bucket, the bucket was pushing in faster and harder than the water was trying to move away, and so as a result the water stayed in the bucket. And with the astronauts on their, say, centrifuge, the astronaut's trying to carry on in a straight line, but the centrifuge is pushing back on the astronaut. So same thing, good example. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dr. Chris. It's great to have you on the show. That's Pauline Hitchin. Dave? I've got a question here for Ed, a very quick one. It's from Josie. She gets cold sores, and she's wondering whether she can pass on the virus which creates them, even if she hasn't got a cold sore on her face at the time. Well, for Avi, unfortunately, the answer is sometimes yes, you can. Cold sores belong to a family of viruses called herpes viruses. These don't just in- include the famous form of herpes we've all heard about, but a whole range of viruses. And these viruses have a nasty trick of causing a visible infection and then hiding and coming back at various points in your life. It's called latency. And with the cold sore, what's happening, it's hiding in some nerves in the side of your head, and they're coming back into your mouth on a regular basis. Now, sometimes this is going to cause a visible cold sore. Sometimes it's going to cause something which you can't see, but it might still be shedding infectious virus into your saliva. So I'm afraid it's always a risk. So in other words, you can still be infectious, but there may not be an obvious lesion of a cold sore there. So be careful who you kiss, basically. That's exactly right, yeah. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week, but do join us next time for World Wetlands Day when we're going to be venturing into the wilds of Louisiana to meet some of the rare species that live there. And we'll also be finding out how wetlands can protect us from floods, paradoxically. So if you have any questions on that, send them to me now. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, thank you very much to our guests this week, Pilakel Jayan, Ed Hutchinson and John Wood, and to our production team, Diana O'Carroll, Mira Senthalingham, Ben Vausler and Petro Minch. Have a great week and see you next time. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.